on Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram, or any of the major platforms, there they let's let's suppose it worked like this. Uh, the the platform would send them out to some other entity. Maybe it's a non-government agency uh, entity. It's a nonprofit. The internet has a number of those, and that that entity just verifies that you are a real person associated with a country and that you are over 18 or or not. If you're under 18, it would you know there might be another cutoff like 13. Because right now, any 11-year-old can get on any platform that she wants to, and that's a whole other set of issues we can talk about, mm. mental health effects on girls and all kinds of other effects on, on teenagers. But I think that's the most important thing, is that we have to reduce trolling, intimidation. You know, I don't want to go into a public square where anybody can, like, you know, you know, hit me over the head or throw acid in my face and run away laughing, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's number one. Yeah, so the, how, is, is there a tension between that and... Our, you know, broader concern about free speech. I mean, obviously, these are private platforms and they can regulate speech however they want. But given that they're essentially becoming internet infrastructure and they are becoming a kind of public square for which there's no alternative, the erring on the side of just basically defaulting to the Constitution has seemed tempting. What? What? Yeah. How do you think about free speech concerns? Sure. So I would hate to live in a country in which if somebody espoused an opinion that somebody else or the government didn't like, that that person could be arrested or punished. So to me, that's the core of free speech. You're not, there are no thought crimes. There are no speech crimes other than, obviously, intimidation threats. There are certain categories that are not constitutionally protected. So I would not want, I don't want a solution in which platforms have to look at what you say and, and judge each thing you say. What I'd rather is that it's not focused on the thing you say, it's focused on the, the features of the space. And so if, as long as we allow anonymous trolls in, well, do you have a constitutional right to say whatever you want without anyone knowing who you are? I don't think so. Do you have, mm -hmm. a, right to, do you have a right to reach millions of people? No, you have a right to say what you want without being punished. But you know, as, as is sometimes said, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. The platforms are under no obligation to let you reach millions of people with claims that chloroquine is, the, is a miracle cure. That's not, that's not free speech. So I, I think just, you know, the, the, these platforms, they're not, they're not individuals talking, you know, in the public square, and they're not newspapers. They're somewhere in between. And, and we don't, our law doesn't quite account for that yet. But I think just as we have a lot of responsibilities placed on newspapers and magazines, I think we need some sort of in-between thing for these platforms. And that means, no, you can't just open 100 accounts and say whatever you want all day long and attack people without, without anyone knowing who you are. Right. So now what are your thoughts about the 2020 election and you know, now the, the concern about the Biden campaign and his viability, uh, yeah. really on two fronts? I mean, yeah. so that we have the Tara Reid allegations and surrounding those, we have this fairly credible charge of hypocrisy against the left, because, you know, we're yeah. on the left, we're all about Me Too and Believe yep. All Women. But then uh, the inconvenient woman shows up making fairly shocking claims about the only candidate yeah. standing between us and four more years of Trump. And what we see is a either a, a, a massive disinclination to even hear the allegations, and once that becomes untenable, we, what we've now seen is an analysis of the allegations that you know, does, frankly, suggest a kind of double standard where, you know, we, 
Yeah. We could go hard against uh, Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated for the Supreme Court based on more or less nothing but the fairly dim memory of one person. And we're in a similar situation here and behaving rather differently. I mean, the way I reconcile this, you know, is just that I think Trump is so dangerous. I think four more years of him would be so awful for many of the reasons you mentioned. And I do think there's something especially awful about doubling down on Trump for a second term. I mean, what yeah. that says about it, it, our country. That's right. It would validate yeah. that it wasn't a fluke. We, we really yeah. meant it. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. We know exactly what we're buying here yeah. and we're going to buy it again for four more yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know how American standing mm-hmm. recovers. I mean, we would literally have to have the Messiah come for 2024 to reboot. But so given that, you know, I honestly don't care what is true here. I mean, it's like I, I can own that he might have done something absolutely awful, which should, in a normal world, disqualify him for the presidency. I don't feel like I know that. I don't feel like I don't know that. I just feel that whoever Joe Biden is or has been, he's better than Trump. Yeah. Just yeah. his facade of professionalism yeah. as a normal politician and a normally empathic person is so much better than what Trump yeah. manages to muster as a person that there's really nothing to decide here. Yeah. For me, that seems to skirt hypocrisy. I'm not inclined to treat Tara Reid's allegations differently than, than uh, Blasey Ford's, and if that's the apt comparison. It's just that the context is so different that in this case, they, they don't matter. Yeah. I consider this a, a political emergency that only has one adequate resolution, which is somebody other than Trump becomes president. Yeah. So without getting into the details, I have not been following the story closely enough to have a view about what might have actually happened. But the key thing that I would want us to focus on here, if you're asking about the implications for the election, is enthusiasm, passion, things like that. Mm-hmm. So Trump won the election. He didn't do it in 2016, not because people loved him and wanted him, but because we have negative partisanship in this country. That is, since 2004, we vote more. Political scientists tell us that you know, the, the strategy for president used to always be you run to the outside to get your party's nomination. And then because America is a fairly moderate country, you have to run to the center to get the, to win at the general. And in 2004, Carl, Karl Rove correctly calculated that the center had shrunk so much that the key was turnout. And so they went with uh, gay marriage to try to inflame the, the evangelicals. And it worked. They got higher turnout on the right. So since then, that has been more of a winning strategy and negative partisanship. Voting against what you don't want mm. is more powerful than voting for what you do want. And that, I think, explains how Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 when it seems as though he didn't even want to win. He made no yeah. preparations for it. He didn't spend any of his own money. He didn't campaign that hard. So he, you know, Hillary Clinton ran a terrible campaign and against someone who wasn't trying to win and was a complete mess and had no ground game and didn't play by the, the, the normal rules. And uh, even though she won the popular vote, he still did win by the recognized rules of the game. So, and that's because her people were not passionate. And you know the, the, the tone in your voice just before when you were saying why, of course, you're gonna vote for Biden was similar to what a lot of people were saying about Hillary. Obviously, there were very different issues, but you know, people weren't passionate about her. But they would say, well, yeah, but I mean, but she's better than the alternative. So that is how Trump won. It, it should have, uh, you know, he should have lost in a landslide. 
but he but he did. My fear is that while Biden is not an inspiring candidate, I do believe the people who've known him for a long time who say that he's a fundamentally decent man. I that doesn't mean that he didn't do something inappropriate with a with a young woman in the Senate. I have no idea. But the there's not a lot of enthusiasm for him before. People generally like him. Democrats, I think, were okay with him, but a lot of groups were not. And and that was the big question was, you know, will the people who wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, you know, will they come back to vote for him in, in the fall? And now you add in this, which is going to alienate a lot of people, particularly women and particularly young women for whom these issues are much more salient these days. So I'm extremely concerned about the fall election because I think the Democrats, you know, the, the Republicans, I was, I was fully expecting the Democrats to win, no matter who the nominee was, unless it was Sanders, I was expecting the Democrats were, were going to win because of the passion issue. But now I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And if, if Biden is not, if, if a number of constituencies are not enthusiastic, they're not going to turn out, especially if there are still risks to turning out, and especially if mail-in voting is not easy and universal. For God's mm. sakes, it's, you know, it, during a pandemic, of course, we should all be voting by mail or by internet or by, or by other remote methods. But everything's so politicized and there's so much incompetence that that may not happen. So I don't know what is going to happen. And it's another reason for, for alarm. What about the perception? This is the second thing that's dogging Biden, the perception of his senescence, essentially. Mm. I mean, he's obviously lost a step with respect to his yeah. speech and memory. And again, we're, we're in an, an environment where there is an asymmetry here with respect to the, the way his glitches play to the average audience and the way Trump's glitches play. I mean, Trump is a producer of word salad yeah. much, if not most of the time, and yet it doesn't make him seem old. No, that's that's just right. more Trump, right? It's like he's got the energy of a 20-year-old on Adderall. Yeah. So he's full of life and he's just chaos, whereas every single glitch, every hiccup in his speech for Biden, you're holding your breath hoping he can get to the end of the sentence. Yeah. The optics are so different. It's surprising. And I mean, this is the other thing that worries me. No, that's, that's right. This is, this is why I was not, I was not a, a fan of Joe Biden. I mean, I like him personally as a person. I agree with you. He's, you know, he's a reasonable person. But he was, you know, he ran for president twice before, and he was a bad candidate. And he was not, he's not a good campaigner. He's not eloquent. And, you know, as a psychologist, what I can add is that the research on cognitive aging is just stunning. People are at their peak in terms of fluency and, and speed in their 20s. And then it's kind of downhill, downhill from there until you get to your 50s or 60s. And then this downward slope accelerates. So in your 70s, it really accelerates. So most 70-year-olds are still doing okay on cognitive tests, although they're not nearly as sharp as they used to be. But as you go beyond 70, by the time you get to 80, most 80-year-olds are not doing so well. Obviously, you know, some are. But if Biden was not a good candidate long ago when his brain was much younger, I think it's, you know, there's not much reason to think that he's going to be much better now. And I think we're seeing the signs of that. So as you say, it's also the issue of vitality, and that matters in politics. People want a vigorous leader, not one who seems frail or scattered. So for a lot of reasons, you know, I think that obviously most or many Democrats wish they had perfect candidate. Many Democrats think that there were better candidates. And uh, with, the, with the Tara Reid allegations, now the, you know, the candidacy is even weaker. 
So my God, is this a drama? I mean, just when you think it can't get more insane, it gets more insane. So who do you think he should pick for his VP? Uh, that I, you know, that I don't know. I've not given any thought to. I, I imagine that he committed to, well, I don't know why, but, you know, he committed to picking a woman, I suppose, knowing that this, that these allegations were coming. So, you know, once he's done that, I, I don't have, I'm not, a, so I'm not a political prognosticator. I, I can't mm. read the, you know, the horse race politics. I don't have a view on that. Part of your analysis of what social media has done to us and the new, uh, kind of balkanization of our epistemology has it, you, you've, you've spent some time focusing on the young, I mean, you know, Gen Z and mm-hmm. below. I mean, now we're, we're soon dealing with, with a cohort of people for whom social media is as common a fact of the world as water, which is to say there's never been a time where they were without yeah. it. Yeah. And we're also having a, a younger generation that seems destined to graduate into a economic environment that is just as objectively punishing as mm-hmm. any in our lifetime. I mean, when you think of you know what it would be like to be looking for a job in six months, unless we reboot here in some way that just is ushers in a renaissance of a sort that will be fundamentally surprising, it's hard to see how we escape a fairly dismal economy yeah. for a, a good long while. How do you think about the cohort you're yeah. currently teaching as undergraduates? What's the near future hold? Yeah, so paradoxically, it 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 could be it could end up in the long run being good for them. That is, you know, clearly it's going to be devastating to their economic prospects in the near term. And research on previous generations that graduate into bad economies shows that it does hurt their earnings for the rest of their life on average. So I'm not saying this is good overall, but the trajectory, the, the, the outlook for Gen Z was horrific. It was terrible. Their rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide have been spiking upwards since 2012, roughly, especially for, well, suicide is up for both, both genders, but depression, anxiety is especially up for girls. And so Greg Lukianoff and I wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And we think the two major causes, there are many, but the two major causes are the vast overprotection, the safetyism that we put on kids in the 90s. We stopped letting them play outside. We told them the world was dangerous. We let them just play with devices inside. And the normal risk-taking, the normal adventures, the normal testing the limits of your physical abilities, and that we, we denied them beginning in the 90s and early 2000s. And so this, we think, is the major reason why Gen Z is coming out so much more fragile and depressed and anxious than the millennials were. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about kids born 1996 and later. The other factor, we believe, is too early exposure to social media. And here I actually have some news to to report, brand new uh, news. The long-running debate over screen time, I think, is actually nearing a resolution. That is, in, in the coddling of the American mind, Greg and I focused on social media. That's what we thought was worst. But we did sometimes refer to screen time or that parents should limit screen time. And some other researchers pushed back on us and said, no, look, you know, here's the, our evidence is that the amount of hours spent on screens isn't related to mental illness. And then uh, Gene Twenge and I uh, reanalyzed data and, and are basically able to show that consistently, if you look at almost all the data sets that show no overall effect of all screen time, well, if you dig in and you say, okay, not all screens, including TV, but rather just social media, and not all kids, but just girls, then you consistently find a relationship between heavy social media use and depression and anxiety. 
And it shows up in lots of data sets, lots of different studies. And experiments back this up that when people go off of social media, they tend to get happier. So anyway, all I'm saying is, I don't think parents need to freak out about screens per se, if what they're concerned about is depression, anxiety, but they should still look out if what they care about is that their kids actually do other things like go outside or learn to climb trees or go out with their friends in person, which of course Mm -hmm. will happen again someday, but not this year. Yeah. Well, so what do you do with the fact that now a concern about the dangers even invisible dangers out in the world seems all too warranted, right? So now we have a cohort of kids. I mean, I've got two daughters, six and 11, who are now quarantined and having a fairly unusual experience. I mean, they're happily, our limitations on screen time have been impressively relaxed. So they're they're enjoying that. But yeah, but tell me about social media. Is your 11 year old on Instagram? No, 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 no. Yeah, all that. I mean, I'm going to be as conservative as as can be achieved on that front. But there are elements of it that are starting to leak into her experience now just because of yeah. the classroom is on you know Zoom and they have common projects where they're commenting on each other's work and so they're, mm-hmm. and they're texting. And so there's communication in front of an audience happening you know, a fair amount. And how that differs from social media really is just that it's yeah. not open to the rest of society. It's just her among her friends. But even there, it just seems to me like a whole new module has been installed in her brain, yeah. which is, you know, her attention is being captured by somebody else's response to something she put out there. And that, you know, that that's has right. many of the features of, that would concern one with social media. Yeah, that's right. So to the extent that screens foster direct face-to-face interaction, talking on the phone by you know, FaceTime, that's all great. There's no problem at all there. I actually bought my son an Xbox when this all hit. He'd wanted one for a long time. And the research doesn't seem to show that it's related to anxiety, depression, although it is very addictive and it does tend to fill up all the available time. Mm. So he has three hours a day on Xbox, but it's great that he, you know, he's really playing it with his friends. So to the extent that these devices facilitate real direct interactions, that's great. But yes, as you say, the problem is a lot of these are indirect interactions where people are rating and commenting. And that seems to be especially hard on girls. So I think this is, yeah, so this could get worse. But here's where I think things could get reset. There is actually danger out there now because of the virus. Now, not that much for kids, but it's a physical thing. Whereas what, what we were getting to before this hit was emotional safety. We were treating kids that, as though they were so fragile that if they were exposed to bad news, that they would somehow be damaged. And what I'm hoping is that this this pandemic will reset some of our safetyism and move us away from sort of the trivial things we've been looking at, the the effort to protect kids' self-esteem, the effort to protect them from words and ideas. So uh, having more adversity in your childhood could end up being beneficial. And this is the idea of anti-fragility, which is really central to our book. The Mm. the word was coined by Nassim Taleb. Uh, You know, lots of people have many views about uh, about him but yeah, i'll just yeah, say yeah. that that idea but that idea i think that idea yeah, that, uh, that is idea a is a good one. one yeah i should say yeah. he, he he has views about many people too so <laughs> yes i've noticed <laughs> but so i just want i don't want to miss this one point so but what you just said suggests to me there's another trap to fall in here which is yeah overprotection if i'm trying to curate just go back to where what you just asked me with respect to my allowing my daughter the social media experience I mean, one, the impulse there is to protect her from 
the onslaught of negative or you know destabilizing or anxiety producing information that I don't want her to have. And it seems to me there are two potential pitfalls there. One is just this, it's another form of coddling, right? I'm trying to protect her from something that she should develop the tools to just assimilate, or one could say that. And then there's just this other feature, which I think is natural to worry about, which is if all of her friends are on yeah. Instagram and she's the one who isn't, well, then then there's just a, a social exclusion penalty that you would imagine a, a that, young teen right. would, would right. pay. Yeah. So to take your first point, it does seem as though I might be contradicting myself. I'm saying that in general, kids should be exposed to adversity. They should learn from experience and you should let them make mistakes. Yes, in general, that is true. But there are certain things such as, let's say, alcohol, heroin, prostitution, gambling, where we say, you know what, my 11-year-old is not ready for that. You know, maybe when she's 16, 18, or well, obviously not prostitution. But the point is that there are certain things that an adolescent brain is just not not ready for. Right. And, and what I found from speaking with a lot of middle school and high school kids is I, I ask them, all right, so you know, how many of you have been shamed on social media? Okay, all hands go up. And I say, now, how many of you think that being shamed on social media toughens you? That is, you go through it and you say, you know what, I don't care what people think of me. I, you know, I've been shamed so many times, I don't care anymore. No hands go up. How many of you think it makes you more cautious, more fearful? You double check and triple check yourself. You're not authentic. Most hands go up. So there's something about public shaming and exposure that is especially unhealthy for middle school kids and especially for girls. Mm. So I'm not saying, you know, I, I, it's a losing battle to keep it out of high school. But look, the minimum age, you have to be 13 to get an account. But by fifth or sixth grade, most of the girls have it in many schools. And that is something that I'm really trying to change. Uh, as long as there is now evidence that social media is, is particularly bad for girls, now, the millennials weren't harmed by it. They didn't get this until they were in their 20s. But I, I suspect that middle school is the place to focus. I think we really need to try to get social media out of middle school. And mm -hmm. that would solve your second question. Because yes, if, if, if it's only your kid, you know, when I kept my son off of video games, he did feel excluded because the other boys were all on it all day long. So it has to be done systemically. And that's why I think middle school is the place to focus. If anybody's listening to this who has any influence over middle school, try to get a school-wide policy that discourages parents from letting their kids, from discourages anyone from having a social media account until they get to high school. Wait mm -hmm. till they're 14 or so. Wait till they're in high school. But you know, middle school is so hard already, especially on girls. So don't make it harder. So now uh, let's pivot to topics which, you know, on their face may seem impressively detached from our, the, the current concerns, but not really. I mean, I want to talk about human well-being and experiences of the positive end of the spectrum of human psychology and, and how we conceptualize this terrain. And this is, if anything, an interest in this has been heightened by our current circumstance because so many people have been forced into something that impressively resembles a kind of retreat, right? I mean, the, the people are experiencing solitude to a degree that is not normal for them. And for most of us, there's been a forced reprioritization of values. We have a, a vantage point from which to see how we've been living all these years and the kinds of things that have captivated our attention. And much of that has been stripped away, or at least shuffled to a degree that many people are, are experiencing even a, a silver lining to this quarantine because they're experiencing better time with their families in many cases, or this heightened sense of uncertainty, the sense that really anything 
can happen at any time. And that's always been true, right? But we live most of our lives as though we take a lot for granted, and taking those things for granted amounts to a kind of death yeah. denial and a sense of control that has never really been factual. So there's a, there's a lot to, to motivate a, a conversation about things like meditation and psychedelics and what they can reveal about the nature of the self and experiences of self-transcendence. So um, let's dive into the, the deep end of the pool, John. Yep. Perhaps to start, give me a sense of your, your background here. I know you spent some time in India at some point, in, either in, in graduate school or as a postdoc, but remind me what, how you came to be interested in these topics. Sure. So you know, because I study morality, I've been interested in moral transformations. You get that from religious experiences. William James' book, Varieties of Religious Experiences, full of all these sudden moral rebirth from an encounter with, with, with God. So I've always been interested in these self-transcendent experiences and their capacity to change people's moral nature. But actually, there's a, there's a, a very personal reason for it. And, and I've, been, I've been looking forward to talking about this with you because uh, you know, you've been out on this for a long time, talking about psychedelics. And you know, they were, those experiences were transformational for me in ways that set me up to do the research that I later did. And I've only really just sort of noticed that in the last year or two, as I've been reflecting on this year, 1993, that where everything changed for me and, and how it set me up to be on the path that I, that I now am on. And so actually, if you don't mind, I, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, um, please. Because, you know, knowing that I was going to be talking about this with you, I've really been looking forward to, to talking with, with you in particular on this. I went back last night and I read, I reread the journals that I kept when I was a postdoc in the University of Chicago in 1993, 94. And, and I found some fun stuff. So, so just briefly, so the story is just this, that, so I, I went to Penn for grad school. And after my PhD, I, I got a wonderful position with Richard Schwader, a brilliant anthropologist at uh, the University of Chicago. And I was preparing to go to India. I got a fellowship to go to India for three months to do research on morality, on especially the ethics of purity and pollution. So I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and, and reading about Hinduism. And I'd always been interested in Buddhism as well. And at the same time, also, Rick Schwader is just brilliant at contradiction. That is, if someone asserts something, he'll, he'll try denying it to see if that leads anywhere. And so it was really fun to work with him and to just question things with him. So all that's going on. And then I go back to Philadelphia one day, one weekend in 1993, and my, my ex-girlfriend, who I'm still friends with, had gotten some acid from somewhere. And so our, our group of friends from grad school all did it. And that, that night is really, uh, you know, as, as many people speak about being reborn, I mean, it really feels like, okay, June 10th, 1993, that was the mm -hmm. night that everything changed for me. So, so last night when I was going back and looking through my journals, I want to start with an entry that I made a few months before that, where I write about how I'm a type A personality, I'm addicted to control of my environment, which leads to impatience and bossiness and spoils my serenity. I worry too much. I'm too rigid. I'm too moralistic. So that's who I was. I was kind of, you know, uptight, hard driving. I look back on what I wrote and I say, wow, I wasn't a very nice person. And, you know, I'd been writing that sort of stuff for years and, and you know, trying to work on it. And I'd, I'd done therapy a couple of times. And then this one night, June 10th, 1993, it's like everything got fixed. You know, everything changed. And I was able to make the changes that I'd been trying to make for years 
it seemed as though they were made in one night. And I, I didn't experience any anger of any kind for several months after that, which had never mm. happened before. Mm. Well. So it really was a night of transformation, which then, you know, as a social psychologist interested in the mind, I then dove in. I, I read everything that I could and uh, about you know, the research done in the 60s, about how they work uh, neurochemically. And I, I also then tried mushrooms. Uh, and my, my, my new girlfriend at Chicago, she and I grew them together, and we, we explored that. And so in a variety of ways, it changed, it changed me in ways that, that you write about. It changed me in ways that, that made me much less moralistic and that made it possible for me about 15 years later to step out of the, the moral matrix that I was in and really try to understand everyone in their own terms rather than condemning people so quickly. So that's the sort of the big picture of how I, how I got into it. Mm, interesting. So your first experience with a psychedelic was that June 10th, 1993, acid trip. You hadn't done mushrooms or anything like that nope, prior? that was my first, oh. right. And when did you first speak about this publicly, you know, as a scientist? Is it something that you were in the closet or around for a while? Or yeah, you... no, I was completely in the closet. And in fact, I, as I was looking through my journals from 1993, I realized, because like, I was talking to everybody about it when it happened. Mm. And then at a certain point, I wrote in my journal, like, whoa, I'd better clam up. Like, if this ever gets out that I'm into this, this is going to discredit me. Because at the time, you know, it still was very taboo. Yeah. So I just decided not to talk about it. And I never talked about it publicly until um, last year I was, in, I was in the UK and I did uh, London Real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I talked about it with, uh, with the host there because he, you know, he was into it. And I decided, what the hell? You know, why not? And so we did talk about it there for about 10, 15 minutes. And that was my very first time speaking about it publicly. But then the reason I especially want to talk about it with you is that I saw on Twitter, I guess a, you know, a few weeks ago or months ago, you had this beautiful metaphor. And this was, I think, where was this? I'll just read, I'll just read the, it was, mm. it's this thing that starts, you're wading into a roiling ocean of meaning with a proverbial thimble. And what you bring back in that thimble just can't begin to indicate the immensity of the experience. And then here's the key line. This is what really got me, because this is exactly what happened for me. You say, it's as though we lived in a universe where if you just reached into your right pocket with your left hand, rather than pull out your wallet, you'd pull out the Andromeda galaxy. And that's, that's exactly what it was like. Mm. Yeah, it just, it's so out of scale with the proximate cause of the experience. I mean, the idea yeah. that, a mu that behind a mushroom some version of this experience awaits every human brain, right? It's just, yeah. it seems impossible, even no matter how many times you, you make that journey. So how many times have you taken LSD and psilocybin or, or, or you know, mushrooms, whatever form, yeah. since? Well, I went through a period over the next two years where I would, I would do one or the other every, you know, every couple of months. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe about, somewhere between 20 and 30 times total in my life. Right. And then also, and I tried a bunch of other things. I was, you know, I'm very high in openness to experience. I'm very curious and I'm an awe junkie. I, I love the emotion of awe. So I, I tried a lot of things and found that those two plus MDMA plus ecstasy right. are the ones that, that really affected me. And there was, you know, some of the, you know, like um, Yage and uh, other things I've not tried, but yeah, those are the three that I really like. Right. Now, you know, you're a psychologist, and I mean, have you ever had 
clinical experience or are you, are you purely research? No, I'm, yeah, I'm not a clinical psychologist at right. all. But you know, psychology is your field, and you know, as you are well aware, and I think our most of our listeners will know that there's there's really been historically a battle between two camps over this ground. I mean, I, I you know, there are more people involved, but yeah, I think you could put Freud against James here, and you know, Freud's one of his legacies is that he dubbed this any experience of this sort to be something analogous to what he called the, the oceanic feeling of oneness. And, and for him, this really represented a pathological regression to the womb, essentially. I mean, this was just not, this is, he wasn't denying that it was possible to have an experience like this, but it was a form of madness or dysfunction. Whereas James was intensely interested in experiences of this kind across the board and in their spiritual and religious contexts and and mm -hmm. indications and you know so he he thought there was something that they said just of necessity about the furthest reaches of human well-being and they were you know a fit object of personal research and the, and the field has really for the most part even though freud has been people have lost their interest in him because of there, there was just so yeah, much first, pseudoscience yeah. in in his Canon. I mean, he was a great writer, but he, he, I mean, the connection between much of what he wrote and actual empirical science is, is loose, yes. to say the least. But with behaviorism and other influences, and just the apparent necessity of focusing on all that's wrong with the human mind, and then the, the growing understanding of what could go wrong with the human brain and how that, was, that could mm -hmm. be studied neurologically. We've spent the better part of almost two centuries, you know, at least 150 years, learning more and more about human unhappiness and dysfunction and the birth of what is now called positive psychology has, you know, while it's, it seems to have been accomplished, there has been much less focus on, on human well-being and flourishing and to say nothing of things like self-transcendence, you know, in its good forms. Until very, very recently, and, and yeah. so, and, and you know, mindfulness has become a, a topic of interest in research. How hopeful are you that we've turned a corner there, and the floodgates of of useful knowledge will open? Oh, I'm very hopeful. I think Marty Seligman diagnosed it correctly in 1998 or so when he, when he was president of the American Psychological Association, and he said, uh, in psychology. We have lots of tools to take you from negative six up to zero, mm. but we don't have a lot to take you from zero up to positive six. And you had to go to the pop psych section of your local bookstore and get Deepak Chopra or something like that. And so he started a movement, and it was very much based within science. It didn't it didn't spin out to become just a you know a popular freak show, and it went mainstream. And and uh, you know research on happiness and well being is done by People get Nobel Prizes for it, in fact, in economics. So, right. so I, think, I think positive psychology, and Marty Seligman in particular, in being very thoughtful about how to build a movement and, and, and fund research, has really institutionalized it, and I think it's here to stay. And then the fact that, the fact that the research on psychedelics, which were so taboo, you know, I think Timothy Leary, I, you know, I, I love him, I love reading about him, but I think he really did a disservice by freaking out people yeah. with his irresponsible use and that that led to the you know research being eliminated for a long time the fact that that research is now being done you know at johns hopkins and you know here at nyu 
So, I, and I think the proof is in the pudding. That is, the data on these recent studies that repeat the Good Friday experiment to show that most people who do it get these benefits. Now, here, of course, you might want to put in all of your caveats that you that you do whenever you speak about this. That mm. is not for everyone, and there are there are dangers. But the fact that this is a kind of a reliable, it's a more reliable, it's an easier way to reach the kind of states that many people want than is, say, mindfulness or meditation, which takes a lot of work over a long time. So I, I do think that it's going to be very hard to, to put the cat back in the bag now. And I think that we will see, we will see much more widespread acceptance, especially of, of psilocybin and MDMA. Mm. Well, let's talk about self-transcendence, because it's an interesting intellectual problem to differentiate the various types. I mean, to talk about what sort of self we think is being transcended and to untangle the clearly positive and, and normative versions of this from the scary or pathological ones. I don't know how much work has been done on this. I know that you have at least one paper that with Andrew Newberg and other co-authors that has sketched this territory somewhat. But there's just this fact that many of the ways of speaking about the nature of consciousness shorn of the feeling of self, as I do in the, in the Waking Up app a lot, it can sound like the language that gets used in the DSM-5 for yeah, something like, right. you know, depersonalization, you know, derealization disorder, right? So it's like, it's natural in a, in a meditative context, so like in the the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, they'll talk about the dreamlike character of experience, right? Yeah. But that phrase viewed through a clinical lens does sound like yeah. derealization, right? And yeah. how do you think about the, the way in which a, the normal default sense of self can be undermined and how we differentiate what's normative from what's just sure. an obvious source of human suffering? Yeah. So I think the, the set of ideas that has most shaped, most shaped my work across many domains is evolutionary thinking about multi-level selection. And you know, this is obviously a controversial area in biology, and it's one where you and I might disagree, but, but I am very influenced by, by Darwin's writings on this in, in The Descent of Man, and uh, then later David Stone Wilson, E.O. Wilson. And the basic idea is very simple. It's just that, you know, of course, evolution works. If you want to understand how we're designed, I think Richard Dawkins is a great guide, and he really helped me. It was the first evolution book I read in college. And it is mostly the you know, competition of individuals against individuals, and whichever genes made individual survival machines that won that competition, they went on to have more genes in the next generation. And so you, you'll understand most things if you look at individual versus individual. But for some species, like bees and ants, obviously, the competition is not really between individuals. It's between groups or hives. And that leads to adaptations at the hive level. And adaptations for a successful hive then also feed down and create bee, uh, you know, bees and ants that are good hive members. Well, similarly for humans, we have always been competing with the individuals near us, but for hundreds of thousands, and really I, you could say millions given territoriality issues, we are the descendants of the groups that outcompeted other groups. And so most of our nature can be understood as a product of individual level selection, but we have this ability to be like bees in a hive. We have this ability to be very groupish. And a book that really influenced me here that I think your audience would really enjoy is Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective 
collective joy or happiness. Mm. At any rate, she covers raves and political rallies, sporting events, and all the things we do in which we we long to lose ourselves in a group. It's ecstatic, we're thrilled. And uh, this is part of human nature. This is not abnormal. This is normal human nature. And she makes the point that Christian worship used to be much more ecstatic, and that at some point, I forget which century, people sat down in pews and listened to a sermon. But before then, for a long time, it was danced. It was much more ecstatic. So to get back to your question, if you see us as, you know, like a formula that I use in the righteous mind is we're 90% chimp, 10% bee. So we're basically products of individual selection, but with this recent, you know, at least a couple hundred thousand years of, of group versus group competition that led to tribalism. We're very good at being tribal rights, tribal practices, that those are normal and natural. And a lot of those are symbolic. A lot of them, they use drugs. They use psychedelic drugs in many traditional societies. And the goal is to foster a sense of oneness. So I see human nature as, you know, just as our brains are organized so that we can rapidly get into approach or withdraw positive or negative emotion, threats or opportunities. In the same way, we can move back and forth between individual and group. Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs has a wonderful book called Morality Out now where he talks about the I to we dimension. And most societies, people spend a fair amount of time on the we side. We're, all, we're also selfish, so people always spend time on the I side. But crises, especially a foreign attack, really pushes us to the we side. And this pandemic has done so too, although not as well as a foreign attack would. At any rate, my point is, having rigid ego boundaries and a strong sense of self sometimes is normal. And feeling that you're part of a group where you're not so focused on yourself, you're merging with something larger is also normal and healthy. And I think, as Aaron Reich says, in modern secular Western societies, we've really lost touch with that. A lot of people find it very dissatisfying. And so they seek out raves, they seek out psychedelic experiences, they try in all kinds of ways to change their consciousness, to get back to this state that is really part of our birthright, part of our normal human repertoire. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that self-transcendence is separable from the variable of how one feels in relation to a group. I mean, obviously, it's the kind of thing that can be experienced yeah. in solitude and, and is often sought yes. in solitude. The groupishness part is interesting, and there it's one of the things that's difficult about this terrain is that there are many aspects here which strike me as orthogonal. So, for instance, I think positive affect is orthogonal to ethics. I mean, I think you can feel yeah. ecstasy for bad reasons, right? Like, I, I have no doubt that a suicide bomber, given what he believes, very likely feels something that I would recognize as ecstasy or you know, a very heightened positive affect right before he pushes the button. It would be only rational for him to feel that, given what he, he actually believes is about to happen. And so I would stand outside of that project and say, well, his nucleus accumbens has been hijacked by some rather bad ideas, and it would be better if it were hijacked by the pro-social ideas of how good it feels to give to charity or solve complex problems, or you can continue the list from there. So feeling fusion with a group can be the ecstasy of, of a rave, and you know, it obviously can be heightened by psychedelics. But it can be the ecstasy of a mob destroying a city or, you know, as, you know a bunch yeah. of soccer hooligans rioting. Or it can be, as you know, I know you know, 
because you've referenced this before, it's widely reported that the primary experience of fighting in war for those who make it back intact is that was about as high an experience as they've ever had, right? In terms of the fusion with their Mm -hmm. fellow soldiers, it's the most exciting video game anyone has ever played. The stakes are as high as possible and nothing ever seems quite that meaningful ever again. Right. Now we have two files open here. There's whatever we might want to say about the individual in relation to groups, but then there's just this larger issue of what it means to transcend the feeling of self in any context, whether you're alone in a cave for 10 years or you're in the middle of a you know, a rock concert, and, and the ways in which that can seem either normative or pathological. Yeah. I take your point that in theory, they are separable. In theory, they are orthogonal. But I think in practice, they are, they are correlated pretty highly. That is, there are lots of ways of, of achieving a self-transcendent experience. And I, this is what fascinated me when I was looking into the, the moral effects. The, you know, Obviously, psychedelic drugs, some meditators achieve it, near-death experiences. There was a, a guy at UVA who collected near-death experiences. There's all sorts of ways. It's almost as though there's a button in the, in the brain that people push and they lose themselves. And they, what comes out is pretty similar across ways of pushing the button. That is, people don't come back and say, now I want to be super powerful. Now I want to destroy things. No, they come back almost always saying, wow, I, I want to help people, or I want to devote my life to serving God, or I don't care about material possessions as much. What matters is people. And so however you push this button, it tends to have a kind of a moral reset effect. Now, I take your point that you could end up doing things that are harmful, but, the, but, but by any, any view of whether someone's heart is more open and loving mm. or not, when you lose yourself, your heart tends to open. And so there is, in this paper that, that, we, that we wrote, so David Yadin led it when he was a grad student at Penn, and, um, and Andrew Newberg and Ralph Hood and David Vago were the other authors with me on it. We distinguish between what we call the annihilational component of self-transcendent experience. That is, there's a, a loss of self, a loss of ego boundaries, and Andrew Newberg's work on how you actually you physically lose the map of your own body. So there's the self-annihilation part. Uh, and then the second part is the relational component. You feel connected to others or to the universe or to love. And so while they are separable in theory, they tend to go together. So that was really our point in that, in that paper. And that, I think, is what actually can bring us back not just to psychedelics, but actually even all the way back to the COVID pandemic and, uh, and this massive shared experience that we're all going through. Yeah. And so let me just put one other idea on the table, and that is the emotion of awe. So this is something that I began studying in 2003 with my friend Dacher Keltner, a social psychologist at UC Berkeley. And we reviewed all the research we could find on awe, which was almost nothing in psychology. But we found a lot in sociology, religious studies, philosophy. And we concluded, we wrote this paper, people can find it if you just Google, approaching awe, a moral, spiritual, and aesthetic emotion. Mm. We concluded that there are two essential features of awe, vastness and need for accommodation. So any situation that presents us with something that is vast, and that doesn't fit into our existing structures. We just can't make sense of it. We have to change our structures. Any such experience will be some version of awe. And then there are other appraisals our mind makes that will flavor it. 
So sometimes there's threat. You know, you, you hear about, uh, you know, in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, people trembling before God. So there's threat, there's beauty, there's perceptions of extraordinary ability, perceptions of virtue, encounters with the supernatural. So there are all these other appraisals that will give you different flavors of awe. But vastness and need for accommodation is the key. And my God, have we been going through that these last three or four months. There has not been anything this big since World War II. I mean, 9-11 was big, but it wasn't everybody. It was, yeah. you know, it, it didn't involve the whole world in the same way. And it was over quickly. This is the first truly shared experience. We have the technology to share it in real time. So this is an extraordinary awe experience for the whole planet. And here's the cool thing about awe. It seems to function as a reset button. The stories you read about in religious texts, like Arjuna getting a third eye from Krishna in the, in the uh, Mahabharata, mm. or Saul on the road to Damascus, they lead people to drop their old way of thinking and take on a new way of thinking, including new loyalties. And this, I think, is what so many people are hoping for. This is what I hear a lot in discussion about what's going to happen to us because of the pandemic. So many people are hoping that this will push a reset button. And it might. It really could. All experiences push a reset button. And at first, it was very hopeful. Like, wow, maybe, you know, we'll be able to solve global problems. And maybe we'll finally appreciate frontline workers and people who earn minimum wage and, you know, the need for help. So there was all this thought that maybe this really will help us, give us a chance to fix what's wrong with our society. And that lasted a few weeks until the internal fighting broke out. So I'm a little less hopeful now. But this is a long, unfolding experience, and it is, in many ways, a self-transcending one. Mm. How do you think about the potential misapplication of awe or the... Mm. There's the capacity... I mean, it seems to me that awe is a, more than anything else, a quality of attention. And so if you take... Mm -hmm. You can discover this through psychedelics or you can through meditation. I mean, it's really any arbitrary object can be the fit mm. circumstance for all, yeah. and yet in other states of consciousness, not every object seems to have warranted the awe, or at least the meaning you found in contemplating that quite ordinary rock while on mushrooms yeah, is right. not something that can be communicated to someone who's not also on mushrooms, right? and therefore it doesn't survive contact with the rest of culture. And, it, and if you were someone who couldn't get back to the, the lumpen consensus trance where people are, are not readily captivated by ordinary rocks, yeah. you would seem like there was something wrong with your mind, right? You can't be the person who's always blown away by every rock and still get much done in this world. So at minimum, it seems like we would want to be able to move in and out of these states of consciousness on demand as opposed to getting stuck someplace where the meaning we apprehend in existence is something that actually can't be communicated, or it seems it will seem pathological by virtue of the fact that the target selection is is random. Yeah, but I think the 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 effect of these states, the point of them, the value of them is not that we can communicate anything to anyone else. I think the value of them is that they change us mm. in very positive ways, and they open us up to ideas and and to wisdom, and and they change the way that we are. So here's, a, as I was going through my, my journals uh, last night, I, here's just one other short quote that I think is relevant here. So I wrote, anger is almost never justified except strategically. I mean, there are times when you might need to show it to get something done, but anger is almost never justified. 
I felt on this mushroom trip as I have on acid trips that I was somehow above or outside of morality. And, I, and it just seemed like a game that other people play. And then there's this. Philosophical positions that I have long been acquainted with have no power or grip until I somehow feel them from the inside. There are only a few or a few dozen major insights or truths about life, and we've all heard most of them. Hearing concepts, even grasping them intellectually, does not bring enlightenment. I am now even more convinced that the intellectual life is a pallid and irrelevant life, overconfident that its way of knowing is the way of knowing. End quote. And so the point is, you know, I'd been reading Buddhism and Hinduism. I'd been reading about all these ideas about transcending duality and the self is an illusion. And I'd struggled to understand that since college. But then you have this experience and maybe you have it from looking at a rock. But the point isn't, hey, what have I learned about the rock? The point is that you have this experience in which you finally can feel deeply what has been passed down to us in words for thousands of years as human wisdom. And the effect of it generally is that you become less petty, less angry, mm. less judgmental. And so that's why I'm so grateful to these drugs and these experiences and the people who went before me and the people who helped me find them, because they helped me step out of my petty moralism that had been my personality before. Uh, they helped me step out of the judgmentalism and really try to listen to people and try to understand why we do things. And so as a social psychologist who studies morality, I don't know if I could have done it if I didn't one day reach into my pocket and pull out the Andromeda galaxy. Mm. Yeah, that, that is a, a humbling admission. And really, it speaks to the, the usefulness of these drugs. It's just that you know, I, I'm quite sure that given who I was at age 18, had I been presented with the, the the prospect of meditating, I would have said, why would I want to do that? And <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. Had I actually attempted it, I would have gotten frustrated early enough such that I just think it's a very low probability I would have taken it to you know, any place of much interest. It just would have been, I would have looked inside and, and seen more or less nothing and not recognized the reason that it was not interesting. Yeah, so so many people are in that category where unless they've had a glimpse of a massive state change in their own consciousness, right. the possibility that experience could be much different than it's tending to be, just is, it's either it's an abstraction that they, would, they might entertain, but there's no way of making it real but for overriding their, their, their normal habit patterns of mind. And yeah, I mean, it's just as an advertisement yeah. for a different way of being, it's, it's really hard to imagine something stronger than the psychedelics that are out there. Yeah, and that's why I think so many people took the path from psychedelics to meditation. Yep. I remember when I read about the, the, the cultural history, oh, that great book, Storming Heaven. Yeah. Um, I love that book. book yeah. But, you know, yeah, and, and, and that, you know, that a lot of the early explorers, they then went into meditation, and obviously that's the path that you took. And I've been, and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this by email, but I'm teaching a positive psychology course this semester at NYU at Stern, and um, everybody has to do a self-change project to make themselves happier. And I, I'm doing it along with the class, and I picked meditation as my self-change. I'd, I'd done it a few times before, but not with great success. And it was one of the students in the class who suggested uh, using the, the Waking Up app. And so I'm very grateful to him and, and to you, Sam, for that. It's been working, working wonderfully. Oh, cool. But what I do is I 
uh, every other day I, I use, I, I, what I used to use is insight timer. So I just have a you know, silent meditation with a couple of bells. But then every other day I listen to you guide me through practices and give me concepts. And so the, it's, the, it's the alternation of that has really improved my practice. It's, I'm getting so much more out of it. I'm learning so much more. But it is, this, it is this, this experience of, wow, I've seen consciousness go through these extraordinary contortions. I know that there are forms of consciousness so different from what I'm normally in. And now let's, let's settle down and look, look carefully and not go off on this rocket ride, but really look carefully. And that's what I'm really enjoying about, about meditation and, and, and about the Waking Up app. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, the distinction for me, and the reason why psychedelics, almost by definition, can't be the complete path and ultimately can't be necessary in principle, although, you know, granted, you know, I just conceded that they, they might have been necessary in any one's case, including my own, is that the, the self-transcendence that has to be truly useful and, and, and life-changing is that which can be coincident with normal waking consciousness. If there is a self-transcendence here that, is, that can really change your life moment to moment and change your relationships and change how you are at any time point, in any circumstance, it has to be compatible with understanding human speech and being able to drive a car and is in fact there to be found. I mean, this is, this is as empirically confirmable yeah. as anything you can experience on acid or on mushrooms. But the difference with acid and mushrooms or any other psychedelic or even you know, a non-psychedelic like MDMA is that the changes in affect, you know, the positive changes in affect, if you have what's generally referred to as a good trip as opposed to a bad one, reveal the emotional poverty and the consequences mm. of it that so many of us have lived with most of our lives. And, there, and that's you know, the price of the, the barren intellectualism you, you referenced in your journal is really paid there. You know? I mean, just spending your life thinking clever thoughts and trying not to be wrong and sorting out your beliefs about the world and never tasting real awe that pervades or seems to pervade every atom in your body, the cure for that problem really is that first acid trip or that first mushroom trip that lands in the right spot. And it can just take a, a very long time. It's not that you can't get there with meditation. You, you absolutely can. But if you're not talented and you're not lucky and you're not persistent, it's a low percentage shot for most people. And, you know, whereas right. with psychedelics, it's, again, all the caveats issued elsewhere apply. But if you're lucky there, it's, there's something that's just undeniable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, Jonathan, it's been great speaking to you. And um, albeit in these unusual times, I look forward to when we can emerge and uh, you know, meet at a bar and plot the reconquest of civilization. Anything you want to say in, in closing about you know how you're viewing this time or any kind of reset to your your personal priorities? So you know I think the the way to maybe wrap up all the threads into one at the end here of our discussion is to say that uh, you know the lesson I take from all of this is that we have to go easier on each other. And what I mean by that is we are so prone to moralism, rapid judgment. This is what set us up for the polarization, the polarization spiral that we've been in. 
it's our, our, our rapid judgment and judgmentalism is what social media has tapped into to amplify. This uh, polarization makes us very subject to motivated reasoning. I think it's what, it's, uh, what led to the passions that led to the, the, uh, the electoral outcome in 2016. Our, our quickness and willingness to hate each other and, and, and distrust and question motives is what's interfering with our ability to address to address the pandemic, to find the truth, to develop good norms of, of democratic speech. And so, and the lesson, you know, as I said, uh, as I said earlier, one of the main lessons I took from my own experiences, the psychedelic experiences, was to be less judgmental. So if you're gonna let me have the last word here, yeah. I'm gonna end with my favorite quotation from all of ancient wisdom. It's from the Zen um, uh, monk uh, Sen San uh, in China, I think seventh century or so. And he says this, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely far apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Now, of course, we have to make judgments in our daily life. But the ability to step out now and then, the ability to see in meditation, to catch your mind doing this, I think shows us how it works and shows us the possibility of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Or of cultivating the ability to not go off on a, on a, on a, on a crusade uh, or, or a mental condemnation of someone or something. And I think if we can turn down the volume on our condemnation, if we can if we can take this wisdom from ancient societies, uh, the wisdom that many of us get from, from psychedelic experiences and from, and from practicing meditation, I think we'll be happier as individuals, we'll be more effective in bringing about the kinds of changes we want. And I think in that way, we'll be able to continue living together. Fully agreed, no doubt. Well, thanks again, John, and um, our paths will cross. <laughs>